Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he had blessed the reading and preaching of it. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning in the name of Christ. We come to hear the words that you inspired uh, the evangelist Luke to write for our instruction and correction and reproof and to train in righteousness. We ask, dear Lord, that you would give us the same spirit, that we might hear these words with profit, that these words might be preached according to your will, and that they might be written upon our hearts, and that we might go forth bearing the precious fruit of your word in obedience, repentance, and in faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 19. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Now, in this passage, we have something unassuming. Uh, we have something that, that we find in every gospel, a list of the twelve that were chosen out of the disciples to be the, what we sometimes call the apostolic college, the, the apostles, uh, the, the inner circle of Jesus Christ, those uh, which were to go forth in the word and be the foundation of the church as it is uh, built up in Jesus Christ. But the imagery here is important and what Jesus does. We, it should be noted that this passage should be read uh, in a connection with what comes after it in verses 20 through the end of the chapter. Uh, this is either... The Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount are another sermon that's very like unto it. Uh, you'll find a lot of, of the parallels. Uh, you say, well, this is not preached on the Mount, it's preached on the plain. I think your, your, um, your translations say uh, upon a level place, and, and that is a perfectly good translation of what underlies it in the Greek. Uh, that this is probably not at the bottom of the mount in which he went up to pray, but on a place uh, on the side of the mount that could harbor a whole lot of people. 
I don't know that a Sermon on the Mount and this are the same sermon. If it is that, uh, neither of the sermons are comprehensive. Uh, we, uh, it's important to understand that though we have red-letter texts sometimes, and though our translations may have quotation marks, that the idea of direct quotation is a modern sort of thing. Uh, that these are records of Jesus' sermons, but they're given in, in, in brief with the main outlines and the main points uh, brought forth. And so what Luke records here and what Matthew records in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 may come from the same sermon of Jesus Christ. They may not, because these ser- this sermon is constituent of the church of God. This is the program of Jesus Christ. This is a, a, a bringing forth of the righteous law of God. And so it makes sense that Christ would be preaching these things over and over and over again. Uh, I tend to um, separate the two. But regardless, uh, we do see how important this is. But in Luke's account at least, in this passage that we have, in what is going on here, we have Jesus beginning, as he often does in prayer, verse 12. But he's going up on the high mount. He is preparing his heart for for what he will do. He is in prayer for what he will do the night long. He watches in prayer. Uh, day, all, all night, we're told, and that's emphasized in the Greek. And he comes down from the mount. Well, he rather calls up to himself the twelve from the mount, sets them as apostles, and then comes down from the mount with his apostles, meets with the larger body of disciples, and then an even greater body of the multitudes, in which there are many that are sick and ailing and possessed of devils, but all of them uh, seek to touch him and draw out power from him, are healed, and then he preaches to them. This is not just uh, an interesting little description of the way that Jesus teaches. This is given with significance. Uh, We are to think back to uh, the foundation of the church in the Old Testament, the gathering of the nation of Israel and constituting it upon the law of God, that Moses himself was in the wilderness and went up to the mount and met God in the burning bush and then was sent and met his brother Aaron and met with the elders of Israel and then brought them into the Exodus, cured them of their bondage by bringing them out to the mount of God, in which he again descended with the law of God. There are clear parallels. Uh, Jesus, what he is doing here, is beginning. We want to be careful with the way. I'm not saying that all the, the building blocks are in place here, but he is beginning the institution of the new Israel. Uh, what will be brought to her consummation on the day of Pentecost when that final bit of what she needs to, to, to go forth into all the world is given her in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And central to what he does here is choose the twelve apostles. When it was day, he called to him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, 
whom also he named apostles. Now, as I mentioned before, he begins in prayer. We should know to not rush past this. Uh, there have been a couple of times already that, that I, and, and saving it for this, this moment, um, there have been several notes where Jesus has been doing his work in prayer. All of the gospel writers mention the prayer life of Jesus Christ, but Luke is the one that constantly brings it up. That every major uh, event in Jesus' ministry is accompanied by him praying. In chapter 3, verse 21, we read that he is praying as the Holy Spirit comes upon him in baptism. In chapter 5, verse 16, he goes and, and he uh, absents himself. He withdraws himself into the wilderness and prayed. As he then begins that, that work on the Sabbath days in, that attracts the opposition of the Pharisees. Chapter 19, 18. Find him praying again, chapter 28, I mean, verse 28 of chapter 9, praying again, 11, 1, praying again. And these are places that Luke puts in uh, that are unique. And, but we find him praying in all sorts of places. We find him praying in the wilderness as he's fasting. And, uh, that's everywhere recognizes that. We find him uh, most famously and most detailedly uh, on the night he was betrayed before he entered upon that greatest of all his works in prayer. We ought not to, to imagine that we don't know exactly what he was praying for here, but, but it almost certainly is not for which men to choose amongst the twelve. We know at least for one was chosen from the foundation of the world to be the betrayer. Rather, he is, like we find in John 17, he is praying for the men he will choose. He knows their trials. He knows that they will participate in his sufferings. He knows that, that as great a privilege it is to be the herald of the good news of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, he knows that it will mean that one of them will be crucified upside down. He knows that one of them will be stoned by the, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He knows that one will be exiled on Patmos. He knows the, that one will bear the guilt of his betrayal. And those are just four that we know what happened to. The other eight we don't know, but he did. He knew what trial they would uh, go through, what they would have to leave behind, uh, what they would have to bear for his sake. And he lifts them up in prayer. And the twelve... He chooses is not at random. It's not just because he happens to have 12 good men or 11 good men and one that serves the purpose of betrayal with him. 
Now, that's not why he chooses 12. He chooses 12 with a very consciousness that he is setting forth these to be the new Israel. In chapter 22, verse 29 and 30, he tells them, I appoint unto you a kingdom. As my, and he's talking to the twelve. I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 20. We're told the role of, uh, of the apostles and the prophets, uh, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And of course, when John is on Patmos and he's seeing the new he- uh, heavens and the new earth and he sees the bride of Christ, the church of God descending from above, and he has it described to him, we have in Revelation twenty-one fourteen. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The the imagery of the New Testament, the testimony of the New Testament is clear that the apostles are to be the foundation of the church. Now, with always the, the recognition that the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ, that the foundation of the apostles is still the foundation of Jesus Christ. That, that these are, are given as an institution. And we, we live in a war time where when we talk about institutional struggles, because we live in a time where institutions have betrayed us, that even the institutional church has a great many problems, But I would say that if you look throughout history, that there's never been a time when institutions didn't have problems. They're human uh, constructs. Uh, Even when God has designed them, he's built them with human beings. And they have all the, the problems that sinners bring to anything they touch. And yet, for our good, Christ is not doing this just to because he thinks he has to. He's doing this because it is for the good of the church. And when we say, I don't need the church, I just want that relationship with Jesus Christ, understand, Christ is calling you to a relationship to him through this institution, the church. It's given to you as an aid, as a help, as he tells the, 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 the Pharisees, everything that God has given is for the good of man if they would only use it. The Sabbath is... Is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We could say the same thing about the church, although the church is really made out of man, if you will, out of the redeemed. But the institutions of that church are made for the church, for her good. But if that's so, if God thought that he that she needed these things for her good, how foolish it is for her not to attend to them. Now, on the other hand. We don't make them the end all. We don't make the church for the institutions of the church. It's the other way around. As Christ himself says to his apostles, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so the church, the institutions of the church, the ministry of the church, the pastors of the church, the elders of the church, the deacons of the church, 
But even those things that are broader than that, the, the list of widows that are enrolled at the church and all the things that we do are designed to serve the church, to bring her closer unto Jesus Christ. They have to, at this point, learn. Uh, Luke is the only one that calls them apostles this early in his ministry. But it is very likely that Jesus himself, as he uh, gathered out these twelve, told them that they're, they're in a time of training, they're in a time of learning, but they will be sent out. What they are taking and drinking in from that intimate ministry with Jesus Christ was not meant just for themselves. It was meant to be shared and proclaimed. And more than likely, he told them even this early, you will be apostles. Apostle means missionary. Apostle means herod, herald or ambassador. It is a, a, a person as it's an office in which you are not yourself, but you are your mission. You have a mission given and faithfulness is required. They are, they are to chosen to be sent out. Paul speaks to this now, Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, verse 8. Paul writes, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. In verses 9 and 10, he deals with the ascension, but he comes back to the gifts in verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Notice here, he's given these gifts and the apostles are part of that chief amongst the gifts. But notice that they serve a purpose. That they're there for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, in other words, for the work of service. For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it goes on that we be no more children and subject to uh, the deceits of the world, but we be in Christ. So they are to bring the healing of the nations through Christ Jesus. And we see a a glimpse of that. I mean, as soon as he calls them, then he brings them into this sort of, of, includes them in his ministry. When he comes down off the mountain, verse 17, he comes down with the twelve. And he came down with them and stood in the plain or the level place. And the company of the disciples and a great multitude of the people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. They are to do this to bring the power of Christ to salvation and the healing of the nations through the word, because remember, I'm not reading it just yet. We'll look at this next week, but 20 and following uh, are part of this event. The preaching of the word is part of this event. And so the 12 are given as part of Jesus's ministry of salvation and healing. 
When we look at the, the men who are to be the church's foundation in verses 14 and 16, it's just a list. Uh, it's a list full of little bitty interesting he- things here and there, but I'll, I'll go through it. Most of it doesn't need much comment. There is Simon, whom he also named Peter, uh, that is rock, for he would be a rock of the church. And any that confessed the same faith that he confessed would be uh, rocks of church and planted upon the rock of Jesus Christ and Andrew, his brother. Then we have James and John, uh, who we know really well. And this, uh, Simon, James, and John, or Peter, James, and John, are also that first inner circle. Andrew brings Philip, Philip, and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is in in the Gospel of John, Nathan. Then we have Matthew, the, the publican. Thomas, famous for the doubting. We have James, and the Greek says, of Alphaeus, the son of Alphaeus, we know. And Simon, called Zelotes, or the Zealot. Then we have a Judas that is, uh, my translation says brother of James, but it's just like the Alphaeus of, of above. It's of James, which probably means son of James. But that's not the other. And then you have the other Judas, Iscariot, which also was the traitor. It's an interesting group. Uh, and one of the things we can say about the group is that uh, they were not great men. There's nothing in them now. Uh, it appears that Matthew had some wealth. He can leave everything behind and still throw a feast. And, and he was one of the men that, uh, amongst them all, that was very lettered. And so uh, the, the gospel of Matthew is, comes from him. And, uh, and there's, there's a great deal of, of, of scr- interest in, in the writings but, but, of course, he was wealthy in a way that was infamous and not famous in the world and brought uh, a great deal of, of shame upon him, uh, which is one reason why he leaves the, the, the profession. But they were not great men uh, after the world. Uh, they were quite lowly. And we remember what uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 26, 1, 26. For ye your... See your calling, brethren, how many, not many wise after the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are called. And this is true of the whole church, but it was particularly true of the apostolate. Uh, perhaps Paul, at the time of writing, was the most noble, was the most mighty, was the most well-known at the time. And of course, he's, he's there as one born out of due time, as, as one that kind of had a weird relationship because he wasn't one of the twelve. But God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. When you think about it. How many of the great men of the time that Luke is writing in the world of that day can we name today? Can you even tell me who was Caesar at the time without looking it up? Probably not. The only reason why we know the governor and the only reason why the governor's name is held uh, into uh, the future is because we infamously name him as one of the reasons and agents of our Savior's suffering in the, Apostles, in, in the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That is not how the great men of the world would want to be remembered. 
And yet the fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John, are known to us. The publican, Matthew, is known to us. Bartholomew, we don't know much about him. If he's Nathan, as, as it seems to be in the Gospel of John, we know that he's the Israelite of no guile. Thomas, though a doubter for a bit, is known to us. Philip, known to us. A Judas, not Iscariot, known to us. Judas Iscariot, known to us. They were not great men. But God has magnified them. They were not great men because they preached to the world themselves, but because they were lost in Christ. They had denied themselves, took up that cross, and followed Him. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. This is who they were. Yet, as we've danced around already, amongst them was a traitor. He also chose the traitor. He chose the traitor knowing full well he would betray them. He serves that purpose that he's uh, after the, uh, the fear of the, the Sadducees and the uh, Sanhedrin against uh, riling up the crowd at Passover. They had decided to wait to a time after Passover. And yet the opportunity presented itself of betrayal in Judas. If it wasn't for him, uh, the crucifixion would be pushed back. And yet it was proper that he uh, be the Passover lamb And that's how it comes to be. But for the church, the church also gains by having even in her foundation stones. And remember, Judas is replaced by Matthias in in Acts 1. So it's not that we lose a, a foundation. There's still 12 foundations. But we also gain a certain recognition about this institution of the church that it is a human institution from the outset. Our Lord has given us a warning to expect wolves within our midst, to expect that there will come betrayal. We can look at Christ as the greater David, but remember that David had within his own uh, family an Absalom that would turn him out and seek his destruction. And so we're fortified as an institution against the failures of men. And isn't it good that we are? Because we see so often those leaders in the church, uh, not just the, the infirmities that you know that I bear. It's just weaknesses and, and shortcomings and faults even as a pastor. But then we see many pastors, many shepherds, many elders, bishops, put in places of great power and authority, and they fall. It is a wonderfully blessing that the church, while she suffers in their fall, she is not undone. The lessons for the new Israel here, and I'll run through them. Uh, fairly quickly, 
this is given to us not just to show that, that the church is founded on, uh, in, in a way similar to Israel and is, in fact, the new Israel, the renewed Israel, the, the, the church that was national uh, under the old covenant has now become Catholic or universal under the new covenant. But also as an example, it is, the beginning is always serves as a rule for the follow-through. And we need to give serious time. You need to give serious time. I need to give serious time to prayer. Especially those of us who lead. Elders, deacons, we open our meetings in prayer. We close our meetings in prayer. Uh, it is the uh, not just the tradition, but the duty of the church when she sets apart a a minister of the gospel, when she sets apart elders, when she sets apart deacons, that they should give themselves to prayer. But any leader that is a servant of Jesus Christ ought to be following this in the Middle Ages when a man was to be knighted as a warrior for his country. He wasn't just knighted then and there. Sometimes he was on the field of battle, but they came back to have a ceremony. You know what the knight did? What was the constituent element of ritual for that night is to spend the night in prayer. Because he is not mightier than his Lord, the God incarnate. And if the Lord God incarnate needed to have time with his Father in heaven, How much more you and I need time for everything we do with our Father in heaven. We often say prayer is the course of last resort, but it ought to be the course of first resort. It's not that you don't go to the doctor for healing, but you pray for that doctor that he'll heal you. The doctor is not... Uh, going to consign you over if he has the ability to heal you. He's not going to just say, I'll pray for you and let God do the work. But if he is a godly man and a wise man, every morning uh, when he goes about his work, he'll remember uh, that he holds lives in his hands and he will go before the Lord in prayer. The same is true if you are working on a pipeline. And there are pressures and dangers and, and uh, things that can kill you in an instant. You know, my brother was killed by a pocket of, of something underwater. It took a moment. But anything we do, if it's worth doing, is worth doing under the Lord's guidance. And those sent out by Christ, whether they be missionaries, pastors, whether they be elders or deacons, whether they be Sunday school teachers, choir leaders, whatever they may be. If you are to work in the name of Christ, then you first need to be taught of Christ. These 12 apostles coming down from the mountain were not at this point sent out into the world. They were there. And there was a bit of honor. They were coming down to the greater company of disciples and to the multitudes. But they were there to hear him preach this sermon on the level place 
They were there to hear this sermon preached as much as anyone there. So we first must be told to Christ. So the beginning is the rule for us to follow, and everything here in this passage should shape what the church does, what you do as part of the church. But then we also see and remember that the power of the church is her connection to Jesus Christ. The twelve apostles are the twelve foundations of the church, but Christ is the chief cornerstone. The twelve apostles bring the word of salvation and the healing of the nations throughout the world, but they determine not to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And to do that work, they needed a connection to Christ Jesus. And so the apostle, again in Ephesians this time, 16 and 18, when he's talking about his work, uh, he talks about the panoply of God, the armament of God, and the purpose of that is prayer. And he says, uh, then finally in um, chapter 6, verse verse 18, he writes to them saying, praying always with all prayer and supplication and spirit. That's what we do with those armors of God. Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. But notice what he goes on to say, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I am a man that has many infirmities. I need to speak boldly as I ought to speak. So you Ephesians, you take out that helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, Uh, the sword of the word, and you give yourselves to prayer that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Or Colossians 4, to continue in prayer and watch the same with thanksgiving with all praying for us also that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. That Paul wasn't just an apostle by himself, He was an apostle because he had the church behind him praying for him. That his ministry success was success of the Holy Spirit, but success of the Holy Spirit not through his work alone, but through all the ones that were praying for it. When he set apart in Acts chapter, uh, I believe it's 13, for his first missionary journey, he and Silas and several others are praying And it is in prayer that they are set apart uh, for the ministry. So prayer is even more necessary for our work than it is to the only begotten Son of God. Note also that Christ is the sufficient answer for every burden. Uh, Luke talks about, he, he makes distinctions. In verse 17, these crowds come, notice, from Judea. In Jerusalem in the south, Jewish heavy, Tyre and Sidon in the north, the Gentiles, they're all brought together. And they have those that are sick of the body, verse 17, those that are sick of spiritual oppression, the unclean spirits, verse 18. And then the whole multitude is mentioned needing to touch him 
for that virtue that is coming out of him, that power that comes forth from him. Because Christ answers every need. The body, the spirit, and everything in between. We could say with the Apostle Paul that I determined not to know anything else but Christ and crucified. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask that you would write these words upon our hearts and send us forth. That we would, that we would seek you in prayer. That we might be faithfully built up on this foundation of the Apostles. That we might draw our power and virtue from whence they drew their power and virtue. That Christ might be all in all. That we would magnify your name and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.